This is Matthew chapter 11. After Jesus had finished instructing His twelve disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we are coming here from so many different places, so many different backgrounds, uh, so many different directions in our spiritual path. And Lord, I pray that for all of us, that we would meet Jesus, that we would see his grace. If we were here from a past of hurt, a past that has de-churched us, and perhaps we're surprised to find ourselves here this morning. Lord, I pray that we would find a place uh, of grace, a place of safety, a place where we can heal, a place where we can find you speaking soft words of mercy over our heads. Lord, if we are here and we are wondering, we're seeking, uh, we're unchurched and Maybe we too are surprised to find ourselves in a church, at a church on Sunday morning. Lord, I pray that you would meet us where we are and that you would step into our lives in a way that is real and in a way that is present and identifiable and tangible. And for all of us, I pray that we would see your call to justice and be inspired by it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, anyone remember the uh, Occupy Wall Street movement? wasn't that long ago, was it? But it kind of came and went. It petered out pretty quickly. It was a movement that for a number of months was in the headlines and then suddenly not. But it started in New York City in 2011 amid, amid the um, deeping, lingering economic recession and spread to numerous cities, including Portland. And with the powerful banks bailed out despite what many would consider criminal wrongdoing every day homeowners and workers were left bankrupt and many without a job. And the movement claimed to be a social justice movement on the side of the 99% whose overall wealth was declining year after year while the 1% got richer and richer. How did you respond to this movement? How did you interpret it? Did you want to pick up a sign and join the movement and go down to the waterfront? Did you want to post your support on Facebook, or did you see them sort of as radicals, as leftists, as those who are not to be trusted? Well, the Black Lives Matter movement is one that's nearer, more recent, and that one too has divided people. And this movement is designed to shine a light on the disproportionate manner in which African American, particularly males, are incarcerated and shot, and they see this as a justice issue. And yet other people sort of ignore this movement, considering it too radical, maybe stoking racial tensions instead of healing them, preferring instead to say all lives matter or blue lives matter. And who could argue with that, of course? If justice is what love looks like in public, these two examples demonstrate how difficult it is to nail down what that actually means. And I know thoughtful, well-meaning Christians who had sympathy for these movements and others who were very suspicious of them, 
because they seem tied to a certain side of the political spectrum. Well, I wonder, does this leave us hamstrung to some degree between the biblical call to justice and an appropriate desire to be inclusive to all political persuasions, that we're called to join God in rooting out systemic injustice, not just individual injustice, without aligning ourselves with a movement that divides the church between right and left. Is that even possible? This is what I stay up late at night thinking about. Well, something has hamstrung us. And I don't mean just in town, but something has hamstrung the American, particularly the evangelical church. We haven't done a good job of being agents of justice in our world. We've been timid instead of bold. We've protested instead of moved into people's lives. Maybe we're just too busy in our individual lives to even notice the needs or have the time to invest in those things around us. And maybe as a local church, in town has been so consistently distracted by our budget challenges that we're unwilling to do something very daring and very bold or new. Or maybe we haven't yet grasped just how central justice is to God's heart and thus to the Christian life. Justice on the earth, particularly justice for the poor, is a thundering refrain throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the prophets. And all of God's prophets speak with remarkable unanimity that those for whom God sought justice, that is, you and I, are to then seek justice for others, to align ourselves with the needs of the alien and the widow and the orphan and the poor. Over and over and over, If you just open up the Bible and you put your finger down, likely within a few inches you're going to read something about the poor and about justice. God requires justice on the earth and His people to be advocates for the impoverished and the marginalized and the oppressed. Well, Jesus knows this. He knows this about the Bible. He knows His Old Testament. That's His Bible. That's what He read. And so when John the Baptist asked him through his disciples if he's the Messiah, the one to fulfill all of these prophecies in the Old Testament, he says, go back and tell John this, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. That's his proof. Tell John that is happening in and around me, and then he will know that I am the Messiah. Now, why is John asking? Think about this. He's not unacquainted with Jesus. He knows Jesus. He's his cousin. He was baptized by Jesus. He knows about these miracles that have been happening, and yet he still is questioning. And he's not saying, hey, can you confirm something for me, Jesus? He's actually doubting whether Jesus is who he says he is. Like last week, there was something about the way that Jesus taught and lived that made Him seem like He was overturning the law. This week, there's something about Jesus' ministry that made John question whether He was really the Messiah after all. Now, where's John writing from? Matthew points out that he's writing from prison. This is very important to John's question and his doubt because John has a death sentence. He's rotting away in prison because he had preached about this new king and this new kingdom. 
that God was bringing this figure of the Messiah, and who didn't like that very much? The actual king on the earth, King Herod. And so he threw him in prison. What's a little more complicated than that in the gospel narratives? But imagine John going around and telling everyone, Jesus is this new king, and King Herod says, oh yeah? Well, you're going to rot in prison, and then I'm going to cut your head off. This is not the way that things were supposed to go, and John is disappointed. He's confused. He's questioning. He feels like someone who's in a play, and all of a sudden the lead character begins to read different lines or begins to ad-lib, and the other players on the stage don't know what's going on and don't know what their lines are and what he's going to do next. You see, John was expecting this Elijah type of character. Do you remember Elijah? Elijah was the figure in the Old Testament who went toe-to-toe with the prophets of Baal and called down fire from heaven to say, Yahweh is not a God to be reckoned with. Yahweh is the true God, the powerful God. No doubt that's how John envisioned the confrontation that Jesus would have with, with Herod, that he would topple him from his throne and become king in his place. And John would be set free, and the kingdom of God would be established once and for all. But Jesus didn't keep the script, literally. He doesn't keep kosher laws. He negotiates parts of the Torah. He comes to John to be baptized like some run-of-the-mill sinner. He befriends sinners and immoral people. And instead of consolidating Jewish power, he hangs out with weak people, with the dregs of society, and says, these are my people. These are who make up my kingdom. He's totally confusing to his cousin who had put everything on the line for Jesus. He said in announcing Jesus' coming, he said, one who is coming who I am not even fit to untie his sandals, one who is coming is stronger than me, but it sure doesn't look like it. Not very revolutionary, not very cataclysmic. Jesus is going around doing ambulance ministry. He's going around healing people, playing small ball. He helps a few people, but the system of injustice remains. Now, every faithful Jew knew the prophecies about Messiah, and this Messiah was meant to bring in the rule and the reign of God, that is, the kingdom. And the kingdom is all throughout the Gospels. Jesus is constantly talking about the kingdom of God, which every faithful Jew recognizes as the rule and the reign of God. But when Jesus shows up, it doesn't look much like the kingdom at all, at least as they had conceived of it. Instead of fiery judgment and the defeat of enemies, Jesus pulls on this different thread of the Old Testament and of the prophecies. Not Elijah, not fire from heaven, not Saul, the warrior king who destroys his enemies with the sword, but instead the comforter in Isaiah. This mysterious figure, the comforter in Isaiah. We all know what a a mashup is on the radio or in music. These are songs which consist of other songs that they've been mashed together to make a tune. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's going back to the Old Testament, his Bible, and he's mashing up these lyrics, particularly from Isaiah, one which we read earlier, but particularly here, Isaiah 35. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. 
Does that sound familiar? Jesus is paraphrasing it here in Matthew. And then in 61, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to what? To proclaim good news to the poor. Luke tells us in his gospel in chapter 4 that when Jesus begins his ministry at the very outset, he goes to the temple and he asks for the scroll to be handed to him and he reads what? Isaiah 61. That verse. That's him. He's answering John's question with Scripture. Don't you see, John? It's all there. The Messiah will be identified not by him taking up arms against the oppressor, but by his identification with the oppressed. That's the kind of person Isaiah told you to look for. You just needed help to see it. So now maybe with that as background or foreground, we're able to look at the meaning of Jesus' miracles. What are they doing here? We need to see them for what they are and what they tell us about the kind of kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating because it wasn't the kingdom that was expected. Even John the Baptist, his cousin, the one who baptized Jesus, doesn't notice it in him and begins to doubt. They were not simply, you see, magic tricks to show off his divine power. In other words, believe in me because look what I can do. I can work these miracles, so therefore you should trust that I am, the, in fact, the Messiah. But you see, John knew about the miracles. John had heard about them, and they weren't proof text enough for him. He was still confused. Now, you see, the miracles aren't, first of all, proofs of his divine character, but more than anything, the miracles reveal the nature of his kingdom. His kingdom comes to redeem and restore and heal this broken and fallen world. The miracles of the kingdom restore human life to what God intended from the very beginning. And that's why I get this. The miracles of God do not suspend the natural order of things, as some have said, but they restore it. The miracles don't suspend the natural order of things, but they actually reveal it. This is how things were meant to be. The miracles are a window, a picture into the kingdom, into what God is working for and to in the person of Jesus. Jesus' miracles are ways of putting this fallen, disjointed creation back in place. It's like a jigsaw puzzle that has been poured out, and He begins to take and put them back together. That's what the miracles are. And as he goes throughout Judea and Galilee and so forth, putting this puzzle back together, you get to see more and more of the picture of what the kingdom is. And it's described more and more. If you keep putting those puzzle pieces together, you will see the word justice begin to take place. You will see pictures of people being healed, and you'll begin to say, I get it, finally. This is what the kingdom looks like. And it's a window in what the into what the world once was and once will be. The kingdom is consistently described over and over in terms of justice for the poor and the oppressed. Justice is part of the very character of the kingdom of God, how He wants things to be and how He is presently remaking things to be. Okay, so what does that mean? If you're tracking with me, okay, I believe that. 
Now I understand the kingdom a little bit more. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for in town? Well, it means that the church is a place where justice is passionately pursued. And just like it pours forth from the very character of God, justice is to pour forth from the very center of who we are as a church. Just as it was for Jesus. Go back and tell John that I am the Messiah because diseases are being healed and good news is preached to the poor. Just as it was His calling card, justice should be ours. The problem is that we have a distorted image and impression of what justice is. We hear injured parties saying, I want justice. And what does that normally sound like? It means I want retribution. I want payment. I want revenge. In terms of film and theater, this is best dramatized in the 1991 cinematic masterpiece starred in by Steven Seagal, Out for Justice. A family member is killed, and so he goes to Jamaica. Maybe that's Mark for death. I can't remember. One of them. But in both of the films, he goes in on a roaring rampage of revenge, seeking justice for his hurt family. But you see, in God's kingdom, justice is what lifts people out of their misery and restores them to flourishing. It's not revenge. It's not retribution. Justice is what connects people with their Creator and with creation again. Justice puts people in right relationship with God and the rest of creation. Now, even more practically, what might this look like? And let me just conclude with three practical applications or maybe thoughts. How do we fit into this? Well, in three realms. First of all, we need to think about the kingdom. We need to think about the poor and justice for the oppressed in our individual friends and relationships. Let's start there. Instead of big picture, let's think about just our own lives and who we're interacting with on a daily basis. Let's keep it simple. We need to ask ourselves, what kingdom-centered relationships look like? Do we use relationships to serve our own ends? Do we choose friends that will make us feel better about ourselves? Or do we see our relationships, our friendships as an opportunity to serve them, to serve others, especially those with significant needs? Are we people who our friends think of when they have needs, that we're approachable, that maybe we don't have all the resources in the world, but they can come and they can make their needs known to us. And even if we don't have anything tangible at that moment that we can share, we can befriend them and we can have compassion and we can empathize. Aren't we called to intertwine our lives with others, to get tangled up in other people's problems, reaching outside our relational comfort zones to befriend the friendless and even the difficult people in our lives, the people that we typically avoid. You see, many of us settle for building relationships and seeking relationships that foster self-affirmation. We don't outgrow this kind of thing when we leave junior high. We just get more sophisticated at it. We hide it a little bit better. But if we begin to understand the shape of Christ's kingdom, that justice is so foundational to it that Jesus uses our care for the poor and marginalized to indicate whether we really have a place in the kingdom. If it's that foundational to our belonging to the kingdom, 
Maybe we should not simply use others as a way of getting self-affirmation, but seek out those who need affirmation and try to provide it. We know we have been freely and graciously loved if we are in Christ. So then, as we understand that, we can seek to freely and graciously love other people. Now, broaden it a little bit bigger, one level up, a little bit more abstract, but what is our relationship to particularly the poor and the marginalized? Wherever Jesus was, the poor were present. Or maybe it would be better said, wherever the poor were, Jesus was present. Justice for the poor emerges as His primary mark for His messianic identity. That's His proof text. Do you see who is around me, John? Go back and tell your disciples that wherever the poor, wherever the blind, wherever the leper is, I'm present there. That's His messianic identity and His proof. You know, if you read the Bible, there are more scriptural passages about poverty than almost any other concept or term. If you were to compile all of the passages about poverty into one book, it would be probably about the size of the book of Romans, 16 long chapters. That's how the Bible talks about poverty. The prophecy of Isaiah, as we alluded to or as we read earlier, is full of this. Chapter 58 addresses this situation where the nation of Israel has a problem. They're wondering, why are our prayers not being answered? And sometimes we don't get the answer to that. We pray and pray, and nothing happens, and we don't know why God is not answering our prayers. Well, they wonder why, and the answer is very forthcoming. The problem is that they have not cared for the poor and the outcast. And so God is intentionally, for a time, not answering their prayers to show them that they've entirely missed the boat of what it means to live in His kingdom. Incidentally, Amos tells us that it was not sexual sin, but it was the lack of care for the poor and the outsider that was the problem in Sodom. Isaiah, in fact, all of the minor prophets and the larger prophets are tough to read because whether we like it or not, it's telling us that unless our personal holiness, unless our church's mission are wedded to care for the poor, we're missing the point. So this is a good thing to talk about in terms of the ABCs of Intown. Is this something that lies central to our DNA, to our heart? It should, and I'm not certain it does. I'm not certain that it does in my heart and life as your pastor, and I need to change. You see, most of us can avoid the poor in our daily lives. Yeah, we may walk by them on the street, but we can avoid contact. We can avoid relationship with them. So I want to challenge you. If you are a member or you're a regular attender, this is not the answer to everything, but I would like everyone who belongs to InTown to spend one night at the Portland Rescue Mission this year. In the next calendar year, everyone that belongs to InTown should spend one time. I don't mean spend the night. I mean go and serve with our regular service on a Thursday night. This is not an end in and of itself. Perhaps this is a beginning. Perhaps this is a catalyst. But If justice is intrinsic to the kingdom and we can't do that, then shouldn't we question our belonging? I would hope that a night at PRM, as I said, wouldn't be an end of itself, but we should be constantly asking ourselves, 
I think, is the way that we talk about the gospel and the way that we live it out personally. Is it really good news for more than just the affluent white people in the industrialized West? Does it have anything to say to the sexually exploited? Does it have anything to say to the people that are camping out by Washington High School? Is it good news to those who are poor in our congregation, or is it just a bunch of hot air? We need to wrestle with that. We need to know. Finally, the third realm is our work, and this is, again, fairly simple. Salvation is not by our works, but salvation includes our works and our work. That is to say, if you are redeemed, then so is your work in the process of being redeemed. Your work is very much a part of you. So if God redeems you, He must also be interested in redeeming your work and what you produce. Many Christians have this tendency to think about salvation in terms of just saving souls. And it's never less than that, but salvation is always, always much, much more. All legitimate work has its place in God's kingdom because it serves the good of others and because it will be woven somehow into the final form of the new creation that is talked about in Scripture. Did you know that? You'll keep working in heaven. As heaven comes down to earth, work will still exist. You will still have a job to do. Now, finally, in conclusion, every person's life tells a story. What did the life of Jesus tell? His story was a story of self-sacrifice and self-giving love. He bled for others. So maybe we should consider, and I hate to beat a dead horse, but we've been told a story of the church in the U.S. that the kingdom exists where people believe the right things and behave well. That's just our history, and that's the cards that we've been dealt. But if the kingdom is present in Jesus, maybe the kingdom is present instead where the church bleeds. It's not where we have necessarily all of our theology perfectly in line, but it's where the church's heart breaks for injustice and breaks for the poor. That's where the kingdom is. Maybe we should be asking as a church and individuals, how do we bleed like Jesus? You see, friends, the Bible and our passage doesn't talk about Jesus or justice simply as a moral imperative. Now that you're a Christian, go do justice. That's there too. But Christians seek justice. Christians are those for whom God has sought justice. We seek justice because we see ourselves as those for whom God has sought justice, that we were the poor, that we were the blind, that we were the needy, and God sought justice for us. He opened our eyes. He fed us. He gave us the wealth of salvation. He looked upon our needs with compassion and grace. He bled for us. How can we not do the same? Let's pray. Dear Father, we pray that these are tough things to talk about. And as we sit here in the comfortable industrialized West, having more than most everyone and every other part of the world does, and yet we still think that we don't have margins and we don't have resources for those next to us. And maybe in some cases that's in fact true. 
we are struggling to get by, and I pray that this church would be a place for those who are struggling, those who are literally poor, and it would be a place for those who are trying to figure out how we can untangle our hearts from our resources and begin to see them as instruments of Your grace for other people. Lord, help us. Help us to have eyes for the poor and have hearts of justice that break over the impoverished in our world, just as Yours does. Lord, let that be true of in town. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.